Anyway, go ahead and go to Judges chapter 1. We're going to go ahead and start through the book of Judges. I was going back and forth about what book to do, but my mind just kind of kept going to the book of Judges. And there's uh, definitely going to be a lot of good things in here that we're going to be able to get from this book. And so, to just kind of help you before we get started on this, if everyone can take your minds back a year ago. I think, was it last year, the beginning of last year when we started Joshua? I can't remember. Okay, I think we started Joshua at the beginning of last year. And I'm assuming everybody remembers everything I preached about while going through Joshua. All right, And if you don't, uh, that's what YouTube's for. Go back and listen to them all again. But no, uh, I, I had to go back and remind myself of a few things too as I was studying this. So if you don't remember all my preaching, I don't even remember all my preaching. I get people ask questions. me. They'll ask me Bible questions sometimes. And I'll be like, I know I preached on that before, but I cannot tell you the answer. But that's why I keep notes. And then I have to like go refer to my notes. And I was like, and I've even gone back and listened to my sermon before. And it's like, that's my position on, on that subject. So, uh, you obviously, yeah, it's impossible to remember everything. But, uh, just a kind of a review of some things that we covered while going through the book of Joshua. In that book, we are seeing just one victory after another for Israel. We saw, see Israel doing a lot of bad stuff in Exodus through Deuteronomy. But when we get to the book of Joshua, it's just victory, victory, victory. And there's really only a couple stories of defeats, mistakes. During the time of Joshua, that was a really high point for Israel where they did some great things. And so, something that we need to keep in mind is that while we see many miracles and victories in the book of Joshua, we're also it's also chronicling there's some portions that were kind of difficult to get through where it's basically just chronicling uh, how the land was divided up. It's talking about the cities that they conquered. It's talking about uh, you know who inherited what land. And so we see at the end of Joshua that the land had rest from war. Now, this did not mean they had fully removed the Canaanites. They had not done that. And God had told them, He said, I'm not going to have you drive them all out at once because God, one of the blessings God was going to give Israel... He was going to let them go and basically take over these cities and vineyards and farms and things that they didn't build and they were going to be able to go right into using them. Well, the thing is, if they would have went and just come, if all of a sudden all the Canaanites are gone, Israel wasn't ready to take, you know, take control of all these places and it would have become overgrown in the wilderness. And so it was actually better if God removed them little by little. But the key thing was though, Israel needed to be paying attention to the voice of God. So when the time came to remove those people, they would do it. Because if they don't remove them, if they wait too long, then those people are going to become strong again and they're going to be a thorn in their flesh. So even though during the time of Joshua, Israel is at rest, there is still more work to do. And it was very, very important that they stay very close to God, that they listen to the voice of God, that way, they would know when to take over these places and when, when to move and when to act. And so, during this time, the Canaanites, they knew better than to mess with Israel. But they were still a potential problem if they didn't remove them when the time was right. And so, while every tribe at this point in their history, they know what land is theirs. It's already been decided, okay, this section from this border to that border, that belongs to you, Issachar. That, that belongs to your tribe. And so, while they were probably had certain areas they were ready to go take, 
they still had some Canaanites in certain villages. And then when the time would come where they would grow, they would get established. And as soon as they would need that land, you know what they were supposed to do? They were supposed to go get rid of those Canaanites and go take it whenever they needed it. And so God was going to give them those cities when they needed it and they needed to stay close to God and follow his lead. So that's where they're at at this point. They're at a good point. They've been doing great, but there's still more work that's going to need to be done. And it was very important that when God told them what to do, that they did exactly what God said like they did when they were with Joshua. But what we're going to see here, beginning in chapter 1 of the book of Judges, is Israel does some good things, but they don't do it exactly like God said to. In fact, what we're going to see, starting here in chapter 1, is we're going to see the beginning of Israel's compromise and backsliding. And folks, when you look at this, it was only a little bit. They, 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 they almost followed everything God said to do. But the long-term effects were devastating for Israel. And there's definitely something, a life application we can make. Hey, listen, compromise, it's sometimes just in little things. And you know, when you call out compromise on little things, you're going to get labeled all kinds of things by the compromisers. Oh, you guys are so divisive. You're so nitpicky. But folks, God tells us to do things a certain way for a reason. Because God looks ahead. And, and we're, we're going to see Israel, when they compromised, it didn't affect them that day. They were fine that day. But later on, it nailed them. So we need to keep all these things in mind. And so I don't want you to just see what happened with Israel. I want you to keep this in mind for yourself as a family. I think we need to keep this in mind for us as a church. These are the things that are written for our admonition. And while we are probably, we are never going to be called to go uh, wipe out a village or anything like that, we are going to, we have been told some things to do and we will be tempted to compromise. We will be tempted to backslide. And if we do, there's going to be devastating effects. And let me tell you something. And if I have time, I'm probably going to be doing a little bit of ranting tonight because the amount of junk that I am just seeing in the independent fundamental Baptist world, in the King James only independent fundamental Baptist world, is absolutely horrible. It, the IFB is not in a good state right now. It really isn't. And so, let's go ahead and start in verse 1. It says, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? This is a good thing here. Joshua's gone. What's Israel doing? They're seeking the Lord. They're not super bad yet. In fact, they're actually pretty good. And this is a very good thing they did here, asking the Lord what they should do. And, and so there, because there was, there was still work to do. But you know what? Now they need a new leader. And in verse 2 it says, And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And here's an interesting fact. Judah was actually supposed to be the lead tribe based on the command of Jacob that was given over 400 years before. When he was blessing the tribes, the right of the firstborn went to Judah. Reuben defiled you know, his father's concubine, and so he lost it. Simeon and Levi went and in their anger, wiped out that village. And so because of that, Judah, Jacob said, 
You're the ones your brothers will praise. And it says, the scepter shall not depart from thee, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And that was a messianic prophecy, but it was also a command from Jacob, who is the leader of Israel, who is Israel. And he's telling them, Judah is the one that's going to be in charge. But the thing is, they never had a chance to follow this because they were in Egypt when Jacob gave that and they were under control of the Egyptians. And so now they finally have been established in the land with Moses's or Moses was their leader. But then it was Joshua, who I, I believe he was from the tribe of Ephraim. And then, uh, but now Joshua is gone and Joshua had not appointed someone to take his place. And so Israel's doing the right thing. They're asking God who's supposed to take the lead. And God said, Judah. Judah was the one that was supposed to be in charge. And so it says in verse 3, And Judah said unto Simeon his brother, Come up with me into my lot, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with thee into thy lot. Simeon went, so Simeon went with him. And Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they slew of them in Bezek ten thousand men. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and they fought against him, and they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued after him and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Three score and ten kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table, as I have done, so God hath requited me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now, here's what I'm not completely sure about. I don't know for sure if it was wrong for Judah to say, Simeon, come help me. Because God just said Judah. You know, let Judah go up. Now, you know, God might have been fine with him recruiting another tribe too. I don't know if this is an example of them not completely following the Lord. I'm not going to go as far as to say that. But either way, uh, they did. They went and fought and they won. And this here is a reminder too, Israel, and we need to understand this too, because a lot of people too that will get, you know, and these are just like libtard people, they'll get offended by Israel going and conquering this land and wiping out all these people. But here's what you have to understand. Israel taking over the land was God's judgment on the Canaanites for years of wickedness. They were God's judgment. Israel was. Now, now, here, now here's something to think about too. Because the pro-Israel people, they love seeing Israel getting their land, right? This you know, gives them a warm, fuzzy feeling when they read this. But now let's think about this. If Israel defeating the Canaanites and taking over their land was a result of their disobedience, what do you think God's going to do if Israel does the same stuff that the Canaanites did? Uh, I'll tell you what He'll do. Exactly what He said that He would do if they did what the Canaanites did. And you know what they did what the Canaanites did? And you know what God did? God drove them out of the land. And because you know what? How would it make God look if God removes the Canaanites because of their wickedness, because of their idolatry, because of their abominations, and then Israel goes and does the same thing? Now, they're my chosen people. And therefore, they're okay. Oh, absolutely not. God did the same thing to them. You know why? Because God is just. God is a just God. And so in verse 8, now the children of Judah had fought against Jerusalem and had taken it and smitten it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And this is interesting too because Jerusalem is a city that has been destroyed and rebuilt many times throughout history. I mean, that city just has a history of just getting destroyed. It's, and it's happened 
several times. And it's interesting, if you, if you go to Israel today, all the different places that they've excavated where you can just see the different layers where they've always just been building on top of old ruins. That's just that's what they've done for thousands of years over there. We don't have anything like this in America, but it is fascinating to see that kind of thing. And as far as anything back from the Jebusite period, I don't remember seeing anything over there that they said uh, that they credited back to uh, that specific time. The closest thing would be the altar of Melchizedek uh, when we were over there. But I, I actually, I don't even believe that is the altar of Melchizedek. I believe that was uh, a section from the first temple in Solomon's time, but they're not allowed to admit that because then uh, they would be admitting that we got the wrong spot for the temple mount. So they say, because it's obvious there used to be a temple there. So what they've said is that's where Melchizedek did his stuff. It's like, no, there was just a temple there. You guys have the wrong spot for the temple mount. But that's another subject for another day. But another reminder too about Adonizek, who's mentioned here, is this king... He was mentioned in Joshua. There was a story about him because when Joshua was going through and Israel's going through and they're defeating all these nations, he's the one that got a bunch of kingdoms to come together. And it's like, you know, they can't defeat all of us. And then if you remember the story, uh, God ended up raining stones from heaven and killed the armies that way. And it was always a really bad idea when people would question the God of Israel. Like when they said, you know, ours, our God's the God of the hills, there's the God of the valleys, or vice versa. And because they said that, God's like, I'm going to show them. You know, I'm going to take, I'm going to take them in their own territory. That's the way God always does things. And so God had done this with Adonai Bezek. And so he ends up getting his comeuppance and exactly what he had done to other kings, cutting off their toes, their great toes and their thumbs. Can you imagine going through life without thumbs? You know, if, if you're going to lose any finger, you don't want to be a thumb. But that's what he did just to humiliate these kings just to kind of have them as servants, just to kind of show his power. But God took care of this man. He was a wicked man. And it said, And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites that dwelt in the mountain and in the south and in the valley. And Judah went against the Canaanites that dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron before was Kirjath Arba. And they slew Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. And from thence, he went against the inhabitants of Deber, and the name of Deber before was Kirjath Sefer. And Caleb said, He that smiteth Kirjath Sefer, and taketh it to him will I give Aksa my daughter to wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, and he gave him Aksa his daughter to wife. And it came to pass when she came to him that she moved him to ask of her father a field, and she lighted off from her ass. And Caleb said unto her, What wilt thou? And she said unto him, Give me a blessing, for thou hast given me a south land. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the nether springs. And so what we're seeing here in Judah is, is another example of something we saw throughout the book of Joshua where it's giving details of how the land was divided up and who is receiving certain inheritances. And again, that was very important back then because... These people, they were receiving a land as a possession that was supposed to be in their name forever. And, and so the Bible gives a lot of record of this. And so not only are these stories of great miracles, but these stories too that are written in the Scriptures was basically their deed to the land. So no one could ever come along and question and just say, you know what, that land's our, no, you know, belongs to us. 
we bought it. That's why they had those laws too, that in the year of Jubilee, you know, they would have to basically put the land back into the family that it belonged to. So, you know, we don't think about this stuff today, but you know what? That's why we have a country that just nobody cares about. That's why we have cities that just fall apart into ruin. That's why, you know, if we actually had an inheritance, if people actually owned land, you know what they wouldn't want it? They wouldn't want it becoming desolate. They wouldn't want it lying waste. They wouldn't want it getting filled with just wicked, horrible, disgusting people. But you know what? We don't really own anything, do we? But let me tell you, some of the, if we actually did, you know what you're not going to do? You're not going to have sodomites in the land because you understand what they're going to do to your community, to your neighborhood. But we have all, you know, we're all just basically gypsies anymore. We're just kind of dwelling somewhere where it's safe and calm and we don't really have any inheritance. And you know, I mean, as a Christian, I'm not that worried about that. You know, I understand uh, I'm, I'm searching for eternal things. But at the same time, that's a really bad philosophy for a physical nation. And if we're going to survive as a nation, as a people, then we need to think about these things. And so I wish we had leaders in our government that actually cared about that kind of stuff. And if they did, they wouldn't be passing some of the things that they're passing. They wouldn't be legalizing some of the things that they're legalizing. I've been meaning to do this for a while, but I, I've been meaning to preach a message too uh, on marriage and just the institution of marriage and just explaining in detail that a lot of people do not discuss, but just, again, why marriage is, it's not just a religious thing. You know, there's more people popping up like Kent Hovind who think that uh, it's wrong to get a marriage license and that the government should have nothing to do with marriage. I disagree with that. And I, not only do I disagree with that, I don't think it's biblical. I talked to a Baptist preacher recently who it feels the same way. That, uh, in fact, if you're a member of their church and you get married in their church, you can't get a marriage license because they don't believe that the state should have any part of that. Folks, listen, I'm a libertarian-minded person, but understand there are some things that government is supposed to be involved in. And did you know that's actually one of those things? And a lot of people don't understand the reasons for that, and that's why they're kind of falling for this stuff. And in the meantime, I think one of the reasons people are getting away from government is like, well, our government says it's okay for a man to marry a man. I know, and... And not only is that just an abomination on every level, but again, the, because of the fact that we don't understand why it's a thing, the government being involved, that's one of the reasons they've been able to make something like that legal. Because we have forgotten what government is supposed to be doing and what their responsibility is. And so allowing sodomite marriage is making it so much worse. But again, that's another sermon for another day. But again, it's, it, I say all this because there are things that we should do if we are going to preserve ourselves as a physical nation. And as Christians, that is not our main focus. But at the same time, too, it's still important. I would like for this nation to be free and to stay around as long as possible and for it to just not turn into a Sodom and Gomorrah. But uh, unfortunately... We, people do not have a biblical worldview and people are fine with this attitude of just nobody owning anything, nobody having any possession. And uh, that's not only is that not biblical, that is destructive as a nation 
And so we're going to continue seeing things fall apart in our country uh, because of that. But anyway, uh, verse 15, so it says, And the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up out of the city of palm trees with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lieth in the south of Arad, and they went and dwell among the people. And you know, when you read stuff like this in the Bible too, a lot of times it's real easy to look at that. It's like, why does the Bible take the time to mention this? But it did this for a reason because Judges too, it's like a continuation of these historical books like Genesis through Deuteronomy. Joshua, Judges, these are. These are, these are historical. They're about the children of Israel and the people that it names. Whenever you see it naming random people, they're really not that random because they represented people groups that were around during that time that Israel would have known about. And so you had a group of people that were from the Kenites, specifically Moses' father-in-law, that dwelt among them, that dwelt among the people of Judah. Now, and so this would have been very relevant to the people in that day. But you know, there's something that we can get from this too, doctrinally, that I think is also very important. This is just another example too, where you can just show how a lot of people who are critical of the Bible, who get offended by all the people getting killed in the Old Testament, that they just are ignorant when it comes to the Bible and truly clueless about things. Because uh, in Numbers 24 and verse 21, go ahead and turn over there. Because notice this Kenite, is Moses' father-in-law. We read about him in the book of Exodus. But something interesting about the Kenites, if you remember the story of Balaam, remember how he was hired to curse Israel? But remember, he kept blessing them because he could only say what the Lord was telling him to say. And Balaam's a very confusing character. But understand what he says here was right. And at verse 21 of Numbers 24, it says, And he looked on the Kenites and took up his parable and said, Strong is thy dwelling place, and thou puttest thy neck in a rock. Nevertheless, the Kenite shall be wasted until Asher shall carry thee away captive. And then he goes on and he starts blessing Israel. So when Balaam was blessing Israel, and it was a blessing that came to pass, he was also cursing the Kenites. So here's the big question. Okay, Now this would be real easy for a dispensationalist to get a hold of this. And like the Kenites were a cursed people. They had no, no business having anything to do with Israel, being around the people of Israel. And, and it's true, the Kenites were a cursed people. Absolutely. But here we've got a group of Kenites dwelling with the people of Israel and God doesn't seem to have a problem with it. What's going on? I thought Kenites were a cursed people. And we know dispensationalists is all about bloodlines, right? I mean, if they descend from Abraham, you know, land belongs to them. Unless it's Ishmael, of course. But you know... You know how they teach all this stuff. It's all about bloodlines to them, isn't it? They still want to talk about bloodlines today. They still want to talk about that. But you know, interestingly enough, if you look at Judges chapter 4, in verse 11, it says, Now Heber, the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent in the plain of Zanian, which is by Kedesh. So notice, while Heber was a Kenite, you know what he did? He separated from his people. He severed himself from that people. Now, what did he do? Get a blood transfusion and drain his Kenite blood and get Jewish blood put in him? No, because folks, it's never been about the bloodline. It's about the, it's about the works. It's about the people. It's about the spirit of things. And you know what? It's when, 
in the Bible, when you see a nation, when you see a people being destroyed, you know, it, it was, they, these people were never an innocent people. Their death always, cause the people that God would destroy, while they were, you know, descendants of these people, they also were guilty of the same sins. They also were idolatrous. They also were offering their children a Molech. They were doing the same things that their fathers did. So often, God would like curse a nation. And in a generation, God would say, I'm cursing you as a people. But it would be several generations later before that curse would come upon him. But when that curse would finally come, the generation that would get nailed were always guilty of the same things. And so we see here, though, that even though the Kenites were a cursed people, we see someone was able to get out of it. You know how he was able to get out of it? He severed himself from those people. He quit dwelling among them. He quit doing the things they did. He obviously you know, started following the God of Moses. And God didn't look at him and say, you know, you still look like those Kenites. You, know, you still have the same blood thrown, flowing through your veins. You're cursed too. No, he dwelt among them. He had a place among the children of Israel. So folks, even back then, it was never so much about the bloodline. It was, that was not the main thing. It's just bloodlines typically determined what you were, how you lived, what God you served. That's just kind of how it was back, back in those days. But we see exceptions in the Bible. So, um, just an, an important fact and just one more example that it's just, it's not about the bloodlines. It really isn't. And so that's why we are children of Abraham because we have the faith of Abraham. And that is why the quote-unquote descendants of Abraham are not the children of Abraham. That They are not because they do not have the same God as Abraham. They are not doing the works of Abraham. They do not have the faith of Abraham. Therefore, they are not his children. It's not about a bloodline. And you got to drink a lot of Ruckman Kool-Aid to get that from your Bible. But let me tell you, people are still drinking Ruckman Kool-Aid. And uh, what, what a devastating impact that man had on the IFB world. But So anyway, verse 17 says, And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they slew the Canaanites that inhabited Zephath, and utterly destroyed it, and the name of the city was called Hormah. Also Judah took Gaza with the coast thereof, and Ashkelon with the coast thereof, and Ekron with the coast thereof, and the Lord was with Judah, and drave out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley, because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron unto Caleb, as Moses said, and he expelled thence the three sons of Anak. And so, while this was a major victory, notice it wasn't a total victory. I mean, folks, it says because they had chariots of iron. Is that where God gets limited? You know, God can handle the walls of Jericho. God can handle the Red Sea. God can handle Pharaoh. But come on, chariots of iron? Well, obviously, you know, sometimes God will put them in situations where they would need to call on the Lord. And we see a lot of examples of that in the Bible. But, you know, they didn't, you know, so they, it's said it's not all negative. They still did some good stuff, but they didn't do it completely. And you know what? Always, whenever you're reading stories like this, when you're doing your Bible reading, make a note of people when they don't completely destroy them, when they don't completely get rid of them, because they will show up again later in their history. 
They always, always do every time. So it says, And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. Man, that doesn't sound good either. I mean, you know, they, they won, but they didn't get rid of them completely. And they're living with them. You know what this sounds like to me? It sounds like a little bit of compromise. Hey, they did some good things. You know, I'm not trying to be mean to Judah and Benjamin. You know, they got some victories. God, God did a work with them. But it didn't get all the way done. And I, I, don't, I don't think this is... I'm going to show you this isn't good. And this was, this was a compromise. And when Israel would compromise, you know what we don't see in the Bible? God immediately abandoning them. Abandoning them. We don't see Him dropping the hammer on them. But let me tell you, whenever Israel would not completely obey, and this is the same thing in your life too. Just mark this down. Everybody thinks, I'm going to go, I, I know I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm going to go do it. And then it's like we're waiting for lightning bolts. And you know what? God doesn't hit us with lightning bolts right away when we do things wrong. You know why? Because God's giving us a chance to repent. And never allow God's mercy, never allow God giving you an opportunity to repent to just make you think God's okay. Don't take that as permission. Because I'm telling you, God doesn't want to punish you. God doesn't want to bring the hammer down on you for every little thing you do. But God does want to do a work in your life. God does want you obeying Him. And let me tell you, when His Holy Spirit comes and starts convicting you, you need to take care of that. I'm just telling you right now, you better take care of that. You better get it right. You better ask for forgiveness. You better repent of whatever it is that you're doing. Because eventually, it's going to nail you. And he that being often reproved and hardened his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. That's what's going to happen to you if you don't repent. So never allow God's mercy. God just not nailing you right then. Never, never take that as permission. Never take that as God's okay with it. Let me tell you what happens a lot in churches too. Churches often they compromise. You know, you know what? We're going, to, well, we're going to go ahead and we're just going to not worry about this doctrine. We're, not, we're going to go ahead and drop this standard. And you know what happens sometimes? Whenever churches compromise, nothing. Sometimes they even grow. Sometimes good things even happen. Sometimes some people might even get saved. Sometimes they might even win some victories. You know, because again, God doesn't just immediately throw us in the trash can when we mess up. Okay, other preachers do that. You know, when you do, when you get crossways with another IFB preacher in, in the smallest thing, I mean, your history, that's just kind of the way the IFB's always been. But God's not that way. God does not abandon us with the first compromise that we do. But you know what he's doing? He's giving us a chance to repent. And But people do. They think, man, we compromised and we had a new family join the church. I compromised and we had our best offering we ever had. Hey, listen, do not mistake God's mercy for God's permission. It's going to nail you. I promise it's going to nail you. And so, verse 22 in the house of Joseph, they also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph sent to describe Bethel. Now the name of the city before was Luz. And, and just kind of a side note, but often when you read the Bible, uh, when it's talking about certain cities, you know, usually like when it's talking about how they conquered Jerusalem, it didn't have that name yet. You know, uh, Jerusalem was originally Jebus. But later, they call it that. But whenever they were writing it, at the time they wrote it, that was the name of it. And so they're giving it the modern name that it had at that time. So it would be like if I was writing about uh, this 
area when it got conquered. You know, it wasn't always called Rock Falls. People are always asking me where the falls are in Rock Falls. I'm like, the closest thing is at the dam. But I'm pretty sure it was named Rock Falls before. I don't know how it got the name Rock Falls. I, I don't know. There's, there's no waterfalls here. But, but either way, you know, if it had a name before that, probably something Indian sounding. You know, I'm not going to get up and, you know, I, I would still call it Rock Falls. You know, when whoever the first people were came into Rock Falls. And that's kind of, we see that same thing in the Bible. But sometimes it will mention uh, the previous name first. So I don't believe Jerusalem had the name Jerusalem before this time, but it was just referring to it in that way so the people reading this would understand exactly what place he's talking about. So verse 24 says, And the spies saw a man come forth out of the city, and they said unto him, Show us, we pray thee, the entrance into the city, and we will show thee mercy. And when he showed the entrance into the city, they smote the city with the edge of the sword, but they let go the man and all his family. And the man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and called the name thereof Luz, which is the name thereof unto this day. And I do think this guy probably did the right thing, you know, in helping Israel out. Now, whether he did it for the right reason or not, I can't tell you. You know, I, I, I don't know for sure. But it says in verse 27, Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and her towns, nor Tanak and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Ibleam and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. So, and understand, sometimes too, whenever there's a battle, and we see the same thing even today, whenever there's battles between nations, a lot of times they make deals. Okay, you know, and Israel and the Canaanites, they both knew if we go all out in a fight, Israel's going to win. But at the same time, too, Israel's like, we're, we'll definitely win, but we're going to lose a lot of lives. Is it really worth it? How about instead of completely destroying these people because they're not going to go without dying, let's just put them under tribute. And then we can profit off of them. But the problem is, you know, if they stay in the land, then the people from Israel might learn their ways. And serve their gods. And that's exactly what it did. You know what this was again? This was a compromise. It, it was a compromise. And I get it. They didn't want to lose a lot of lives. But, again, if they would have went to the Lord and said, Lord, what do you think we should do? You know what I think God would have done just based on what God had a history of doing? He said, I'll be with you in battle. And you know what? Maybe they would have had more cool you know, Jericho-type battles where God does all the fighting. We see a lot of examples in the Bible where the armies would go out, but God did all the fighting. And so, that's what I think they should have done. But you know what? They compromised. And it says, Neither did Ephraim, verse 29, drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of Nahalol, but the Canaanites dwelt among them and became tributaries. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, nor the inhabitants of Zidon, nor Alab, or Aksib, or Helba, nor of Aphek, or nor of Rehob. But the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beshemesh, nor the inhabitants of 
Bethanath, but he dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Bethshemesh and of Bethanath became tributaries unto them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain, for they would not suffer them to come down to the valley. But the Amorites would dwell in Mount Heres and Ajalon and Shelbim. Yet the hand of the, of the house of Joseph prevailed so that they became tributaries. And the coast of the Amorites was from the going up to Akrabim from the rock and upward. So, that, that ends chapter 1. Now, let me ask you. Was God doing a work still with Israel? Yes, He was. Was Israel still getting victories? Yes, they were. Were they, were they still having good times? Yes, they were having good times. Everything we're seeing is all still... It's good. It's positive. It's a gain. They're gaining land. Good things are happening. God's doing a work. But we also are seeing Israel not completely following the Lord. And let me tell you something. God was not pleased with that. And understand, as a church, as an individual, you can, if you, when you start compromising, it does not mean God's done with you. It doesn't mean all of a sudden now you're not going to be able to get people saved anymore. It doesn't mean that as a church we're still not going to get some things done. But long term, it is going to affect us. And let's go ahead and let's look at the next few verses of chapter 2. Look what it says. It says, And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass, and the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. And guess what? We're going we're gonna to see this as we go through. The problems that came still didn't come overnight. Some of the problems that we're going to see, it's years later. It's, it's the next generation before they really got nailed in these areas. But folks, what we are seeing happen here is compromise. We're seeing Israel backsliding. They're still good. They're still better than all the other nations. But you know what? They're not as good as they were during the days of Joshua. And let me tell you, we don't ever want to get to a place where we're just satisfied with where we're at because what's going to end up happening? We're going to start sliding backwards. We're going to start compromising. We're going to get tired of fighting battles. Do you ever get tired of fighting battles? Of course you get tired of fighting battles. Sometimes it's like, you know what? I just like to have a year. Let's just take 2023, no battles. All right? We're not going to get in fights with anybody. We're not going to fight with any Rukmanites. We're not going to fight with any heretics. We're not going to fight with the homos. You know, we're just going to take a year off. June, we say nothing about homos, just, you know, because we're tired of getting harassed by these people. You know, just, let's, let's just take a break. I mean, folks, is it wrong to take a break? I mean, every once in a while, come on. I mean, in the Bible, we see they have rest. I can find places where it says they have rest. Listen, you know what we should, we should always do? We should always be seeking God in everything and asking Him what we need to do. And I'm telling you, you know, I think this is working time. I think rest is coming in the millennium. Right. I, I, that's personally what I believe. 
And it's, you know, in our flesh, we can justify our flesh to do anything. I mean, some of y'all have broken all your New Year's resolutions. Why? Because your flesh wanted the pizza. Because your flesh wanted the donuts. You were going to exercise this morning, but your flesh said, ah, hit the snooze button. You know, you can exercise tomorrow. And let me tell you, we can be the same way as a church. Backsliding and compromise are two of the most dangerous enemies that are out there. And what we're seeing happening in the book of Judges is not so much a nation that has embraced full-blown wickedness. They haven't. Okay, Even when they find out from the angel God's mad at them, they cried about it. They had a camp meeting. And everybody came to the altar and they had a good cry session. But then they did it just like they do at camp meetings. Everybody went home and did the exact same thing they were doing before. That's exactly what, what happened. And this, But this nation was backsliding. It was a nation in compromise. Battles will make you weary. Sometimes you want to break, but we can't afford it. The cost is too great. And so what we're seeing in the beginning of this book is a shift that begins to take Israel to horrible places. And folks, we see some bad stories in the book of Judges. We're going to get to Judges 19 eventually. That is not a happy story. But you know what? That is a result of compromise that they made starting here in chapter 1. And in Galatians 5, 7, remember what Paul said, ye did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth. I ran good for a long time. Yeah, but you needed to finish your course. You needed to keep going. I'm still ahead of most people. Listen, don't let anybody hinder you. This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. This is a little bit of compromise. You Baptists, you're always fighting about everything. You know, you're always making such a big deal about everything. It's because a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Pastor, are you really going to let there be a battle in the church? Are you really going to let there be a church split you know, over this one doctrine? I mean, this is a tertiary doctrine, as the trendies will call it. This isn't is, this is even secondary. It's, it's tertiary. This is, this is third degree. I don't know what the fourth degree would be. I'm still waiting for these people to give me a list of the primary, secondary, and tertiary doctrines. And then you know, we're all supposed to follow that, apparently. But let me tell you, I believe much of what we're seeing today, even in the IFB, is a result of compromise and backsliding. And let me tell you, we could, we could, we could shut down our soul winning program here at this church. And you know what? I'll bet as long as you all supported me on it, our church could still do good for a while. I'll bet. In fact, you know what? We might even do a little bit better financially. It would save us some money. It would save us some work. It'd be more fun. It might make us a little more appealing to some of the money crowd that's out there that just want to show up and not you know, feel any pressure to do anything. You know, we might see some better things. I might be able to get a bigger, nicer house. I might be able to buy a jet ski if we start doing some of that stuff. Somebody today was sending me this thing about a missionary that's got this surfing ministry. I was like, I'm going to talk to them about my jet ski ministry I want to get going. But, <laughs> I mean, I promise they won't come present at this church. <laughs> But it, these things, they don't happen overnight. God might, you know, I, th- I think God would still get, you know, we'd still get some people saved. You know, we'd be like the churches that only get the ones saved that come into the church, you know, but we'd still get some visitors. We'd still get some people saved. You know, we get the kids that are growing up in this church saved. We'll still be preaching the right gospel and all these things. These things, it wouldn't happen overnight, but let me tell you, this is exactly what will happen if we quit our soul winning program. Eventually, we're going to start feeling bad because of all the churches that are still out there soul winning. 
And so you know what we're going to do? We're going to start teaching repent of sin stuff. Because that's what they all do. Ah, you can't really be getting those people saved. You know why they have to say that? Because if we're all getting people saved that easy, then they have to answer the question, why aren't we? And everybody knows why they're not. It's because they're not out there doing it. And so that's when they that's when they start preaching. Well, you know, if you really if these people really got saved, they'd be in church like they're supposed to be. That's why they start teaching that stuff. That's where that comes from. They compromised. They got lazy. They got tired of doing the work. And, you know, and, and so they did. You can quit having a soul winning program and you can still reach people. You can still get some people saved. You can still preach good doctrine. But it's a compromise. It's, it's wrong. It's a mistake. And it will eventually lead to the weird, you, you know, you'll, first you'll just confuse everybody on the preaching. Half your church will be making professions every year because they can't figure out if they really repented of their enough sins or not. And the kids that grew up in this church, I mean, we're going to still have strict standards and everything. So the kids that have grown up in this church, they never drank, they never done drugs, they never done all these terrible things. And so, you know, when the camp meeting preacher comes in talking about all the sins he repented of and the life of drugs and all those things and about his emotional experience he had, the kids here, they never had that. I don't know if I have it. I, you know, I got in an argument with my sister yesterday. And, you know, and you know, when you're 12 years old, that's about as big as your sin gets. You know, I talked back to my mom the other day. I, I must not be saved. And eventually, they're going to get tired of hearing that preaching, always getting manipulated emotionally and making these weird decisions. And eventually, you know what they're going to become? Recovering fundamentalists. And then that's just one step away from the atheists and the Skorzynskis and people like that. Just it's just one step away. That's where they all end up. So again, these things, they don't happen overnight, folks. But you know what? People get, uh, you know, you people that are just down in these churches that don't have soul winning, because some of us have been around for a little while and we know where it leads. Oh, that's that slippery slope fallacy. Hey, and I I get it. it, I, I haven't declared these people heretics yet. I haven't said that God's done with them yet. I haven't said they're not getting... They're, they're, a lot of them are. They're, they're good people, getting people saved, doing some good things, but it's only a matter of time. And not only are they going to be teaching confusing, repentant sin stuff, pretty soon they're going to be full-blown Lordship Salvation people. And then at that point, they're in apostasy. At that point, they're not getting people saved in their church anymore. So we could, we could change our music tomorrow. And you know what? We could probably still be a conservative church for a while, but eventually, eventually, it always starts with the music. I don't understand why. It always starts with the music, but then eventually, we're going to start dressing down, and eventually, I don't, I don't, I still don't understand why. But if we do, I promise, if we change our music, eventually we will change our dress, and eventually we will lose the King James Bible. I don't understand why that is. I don't understand why you can't be King James only and wear skinny jeans while you're preaching. But you can't do it. You can't do it. Where's Pastor Skinny Jeans at his bistro table with his King James Bible? I can't find him. So I don't, I don't get why that, how it works that way. But I don't want to become another Fun Center ESV church. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to keep being conservative on our music. I don't see how those two things are related. Just watch. Start watching some churches and you'll see they're related. I, I still don't get the connection, but it's, it's there. And so the book of Joshua shows us what God will do with the nation that is dedicated to Him. The book of Judges shows us what God will do with the nation that forgets Him. 
And we do not want to be that way. Folks, the IFB, we, the, the stuff that is being taught in the name of King James onlyism, in, in independent, I'm, I'm only talking right now about independent fundamental King James only Baptist churches. You have got numerology being taught, but it's okay because it's, they call it numerics. It's the exact same thing. You've got weird numerology. Using numerology, counting the letters in a verse to prove that the King James Bible is the Word of God. And we wonder why people are going away from King James only. When you're teaching dumb stuff like that, that's absolutely ridiculous. We've got dispensational salvation. And, and let me tell you something. I'm nice to dispensationalists, but let me tell you, it's a compromise. I do not believe that all dispensational churches, that God is done with them and that they are not getting people saved anymore. But that is a compromise. And if they're going to keep fighting for this pre-trib rapture, they're going to keep fighting for this support political movement supporting the Jews. Eventually, they're going to go into full-blown ructardation. They're going to be preaching multiple Gospels. And then at that point, they are going to be worthless. And let me tell you, Israel, here in the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 1, they're still a good nation. They're still getting victory. They're still doing great things for God. But they compromised. And we're going to see what happens to this nation. And let this, let, as we go through this book, let this be a warning to all of us about compromise. Let it be a warning to you as a family. You, you fathers, don't compromise on these things. It, it will cost you. It will nail you. It will take years. But it will eventually get you. Let it be a challenge to us as a church to not compromise. It'd be nice to have more people like us. But, folks, I don't want to be up here preaching numerology. Dispensational salvation. Just the, I mean, lordship salvation. Uh, I, we, we can't let that happen. And it's happening all the time. It's getting hard to find an independent fundamental King James only Baptist church that's not involved in this foolishness. So, um, it's, folks, it's not like we haven't been warned. We have been warned. And a little leaven, leaven at the whole lump. And so let's keep fighting. Let's keep staying strong. 2023, it's not going to be vacation year, folks. You know what we're going to try to do in 2023? A whole bunch of work. We're going to try to do more soul winning than we did last year. We're going to try to do more work than we did last year. And you know what? You can take a break in the millennium. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank You so much for your word and for the examples that you've given us. I pray you'll help us to have the wisdom to learn from these things and help us not to make the same mistakes that Israel made, but you'll help us to uh, just obey you to the best of our abilities, that we will stand strong and firm, and that we will always seek your face and follow your lead in everything we do. In your name we pray. Amen.